Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome again to the Snooker Scene Podcast. Um, we start, of course, with sad news uh, this week, the passing of Doug Mountjoy. We actually spoke, didn't we, on Sunday briefly, because mm. we do do a little prep, bit of preparation. And my idea was we would start this week as it's the Welsh Open by just sort of throwing around a few Welsh names. And then literally about an hour later, we, we heard that Doug had passed away. Um, very sad news. I mean, I think like just speaking personally, as I get older, the sort of the, the, the figures of that era when I was growing up watching snooker in some ways become even more special. Um, yeah. Because when you're young, they're just kind of always there, you know, they're always there. And it's the, it's the same sort of, I guess, 15, 20 people you see in every event. Um, but as time passes and maybe you get to know them a little bit, you get to find out about their background and their lives and you get to see them grow older. I think you appreciate them more. And, you know, we'll talk shortly about obviously his UK win um, but you know, he was very early on. I mean, he turned pro late. That's the thing. He was 34 when he turned pro because there wasn't particularly a professional game. He won the world amateur championship. He won the masters invited in uh, as a sort of last minute replacement, hit the ground running. And I would say for a while before Jimmy White's sort of emergence, you could argue he was on that list of best player not to be world mm. champion. Yeah, it was amazing, really, because after we'd said, let's talk about some Welsh players of the past, he was one of the names I thought of, and I was thinking what I might say about him. And then, incredibly, as you say, only an hour or two later, turned out that uh, he had died. You know, you and I have been in the game a long time, and, and you know that you meet all sorts of people on the circuits, and some of them really have no feeling for the game. And sometimes it doesn't matter, because the job they're doing doesn't really require that. Funnily enough, you actually come across some players who you feel... They're quite good at the game, obviously, if they're on the tour, but the game hasn't really got under their skin and into their blood. Now, I never actually met Doug Mountjoy because he was finishing up in the game at pretty much the time I was starting to work in tournaments. But growing up watching him on TV, he was one of those people you just knew that if you spoke to him for two minutes about the game, you would know straight away it was in his blood. It was just his whole life. He came from that whole background that so many of the Welsh players came from. People often say, well, why are there so many good Welsh snooker players when you consider what a small place it is? And a lot of it goes back to those mining communities and the working men's clubs and all the rest of it. And that was the world that he came from. 
turned professionals, I think you mentioned there, quite late on, and went on to become actually a very, very successful player very quickly. And I was thinking we were talking about Willie Thorne when he died and how, although he had a very good career, perhaps his fame among the general public was out of proportion to what he actually achieved in the game. Doug, I think, was perhaps the opposite because he won two UK championships. Yes, everyone remembers 88. He won the Masters as well. So three tri- three time Triple Crown winner, as you would say. And as you also mentioned, he got to the World Championship final and was a top player for many, many years. But he isn't perhaps thought of as one of the absolute icons of that era and the household names. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is that when he stopped playing, he more or less disappeared, came back, made a couple of appearances in the World Seniors uh, not that long ago when it was revived. But he was never really cut out for media work. I don't think he ever pursued that. I know he was a respected coach, but I don't think he ever worked with any of the real top players. So perhaps that's why his name was perhaps forgotten a bit among the wider public. But he's one of those people who I, I can't think of. As I say, he was going out of the game at the time I was starting to work on it. But I've heard his name come up many times at tournaments over the years since. I can't remember a single bad word ever being said about him. And he just seemed to be universally popular. Yeah, a lot of the, the tributes have rightly focused on his remarkable second capture of the UK Championship. And it's a story, I think, that's become quite well known. He was 46. He was in decline. He went to see the coach, Frank Callan. He turned it around. He beat Stephen Hendry in the final three centuries in a row. That's been covered. And, and part of that narrative, and it's all, almost tacked on, then he won the next event, the Mercantile, mm. Classic, Mercantile Classic. Well, this podcast is very much about the Mercantile Classic. And so we're, I think we're going to focus more on that, actually, than the UK, because the, the UK has been talked about a lot. Uh, it's, it's important, I think, for listeners who are uh, not, uh, not old enough to remember it or just new to snooker. The Mercantile Classic was a massive event. It was on I, the ITV network. It was always in the new year. So it was the first event of the new year, just after Christmas. And for that reason, because it was January and the weather was bad and all the rest of it, always got good viewing figures. Um, and in the final, he beat Wayne Jones, who was someone he knew very well, who looked up to Doug, I think, as a bit of a mentor. Fair to say that the final wasn't, uh, all puns intended, a classic. It wasn't the, mm. the, high, the high standard. It was a bit of a fight. Um, I think there was a lot of emotion involved because in, any other day, Doug would have wanted Wayne Jones to win. Um, so maybe that inhibited the performance a little bit. Um, but he beat some some top players along the way. He beat Tony Knowles in the, in the semis. He beat Cliff Thorburn. And obviously just had a lot of momentum after that after that UK win. Yeah, uh, the, the tone for that tournament was actually set before the cameras had even started rolling because the format at that time, there were 64 players. There'd been a couple of qualifying rounds, uh, but the top 32 then joined in for the final stages with the 32 players who had come through qualifying. But there was a round played pre-televised. Now, you would never get this really now being encouraged to any great extent in any of the big events in Britain. The broadcasters always want the top players to be in it and to be playing their first match in front of the cameras doesn't always happen. But back in those days, top players pretty much always, except for the World Championship, had to play at least one match before the TV cameras started. And that included Steve Davis, who had won uh, the Mercantile for the previous two years. He was beaten by Tony Chappell in the pre-televised round. And that always set the tone for a tournament. If, if, and it actually happened on a number of occasions that Steve got beaten in the pre-televised section. And it felt like the whole thing had been opened up then. And then there were so many surprise results over those couple of weeks. It actually turned into an event that was memorable for the Welsh, because I think there were five of them in the last 16. Two of them, as you say, got into the final. And as Mountjoy kept playing his way through the rounds, you thought, well, hang on a minute here. Surely that UK isn't going to be you know, anything other than a flash in the pan. But as he got through, 
He ended up in a final that he was favourite to win and yet almost didn't win it because Jones, probably for most of that match, looked the more likely winner. But then Mountjoy finished very, very strongly. And as you say, he'd won back-to-back ranking titles. You see this so often in, in many sports. Every sport really has a story like this of someone who's had a good career, looks like his best days are behind him. Then he actually has his greatest moment. You think of Goran Ivanisevic winning Wimbledon 20 years ago this year. Darren Clark winning the Open 10 years ago this year. Thing is, for both of them, that was it. They never did anything more after that. I know Clark has won some seniors events recently, but in the sort of mainstream arena, they never did anything more after their finest hour. Mountjoy's finest hour, as we've discussed, was the UK in 88. But not only did he win the Mercantile, he went on from there, got to another ranking final, actually, the following season, and finished that season number five in the world. And the, the top four, I think, at that time were Hendry, Davis, Parrot and White. So to be the best of the rest behind those four was, was amazing stuff. And then dropped out of the top 16 in 92. But then even after that, and even in spite of having a lot of problems off the table, including cancer, he still had a couple of little mini revivals in the years following that. In 93, for example, he was the only player to go from the qualifying rounds of the World Championship all the way to the last 16. And that was when he turned 50 by then, as I say, was battling health problems. So he just never seemed to be completely gone. Then a few years after that, Finished up in 1997 and, as I say, didn't really hear a great deal about him after that. And, of course, in that season that we've just talked about, he actually won the Welsh professional as well. Obviously, it's only mm. for Welsh, Welsh players, but three titles. I think there's, there's two types of snooker player. I think there's some who play the game, love the game, but at some point move on. And even Steve Davis has done that now. You know, Steve played all his life. He's now put his cue down. That's it. Move on to other things. You look at Neil Folds, you know, mm. again, again, had a career at the top level, but decided, OK, that's it. I'm not going to pursue it any longer. Still involved in snooker, but has gone into other things as well. And there's lots of other players like that. And then there's there's players who just always will play. And Doug, in his last days, I mean, I spoke to Mark Williams only a couple of months ago, actually, just randomly about Doug Mountjoy. And, you know, he was still before the lockdown, going into the club every now and again, having a social game passing on a bit of advice to some of the young Welsh players. Some of them have spoken on social media this week about, you know, how he helped them. Um, all below the radar, you know, not not pu- pu- publicised, but he was still just playing snooker, which is how he started. You know, he started as an amateur, as you mentioned, as a minor in the working men's clubs and in the leagues, became a top professional. That ended, but he still, to the end, was playing snooker. As I, I wrote a piece on the World Snooker website yesterday, a pure snooker man is Doug Mountjoy. Mm. And a lot of people of a certain age have a lot of happy memories about him. And obviously we, you know, we send our condolences to his family. Um, it's strange timing really, because obviously it was on the eve of the Welsh Open. Mm. And at least that gave everyone yesterday a chance to pay the tributes, which BBC Wales and Eurosport did and lots of other people as well. Um, of course, the Welsh Open is in Wales. Um, <laughs> so the first event since the World Championship at the Crucible last August to not be a Milton Keynes. I'll say this about that. I, I completely understand why everyone is enjoying a change of scene. And obviously Celtic Manor, it's beautiful scenery around there, nice part of the world in Newport. I'll say this though, Milton Keynes and the, the Marshall Arena and the hotel there, the Hilton, they deserve a big vote of thanks. They staged these events, you know, but for them, they may not have been on. You know, it was a venue that, that worked because there was a hotel bolted on. So if you had to keep people inside, you could. Um, and the staff there, and I know this for a fact because I've done events there, they had to stay on site as well. They couldn't be at home with their families. They had to stay at the hotel themselves away for weeks at a time. 
So it just slightly annoyed me a little bit yesterday. I heard a couple of players saying, oh, thank God we're not in Milton Keynes. Well, actually, how about a little bit of thanks for the fact that they managed to get these events on? Celtic Manor is a slightly different arrangement. The main hotel's not open, so the players aren't actually staying on site as such. So it's not quite as strict a bubble, but obviously they passed whatever protocols they have to agree. They have to agree it with the, the local council and so on. I'm not saying it's not safe. It's a slightly different setup. I think a change of scene, um, you know, is probably a good thing. But like I say, I, I, I'm going to defend Milton Keynes because, you know, but for them, who knows if, if those events would have been on or not. We'll see uh, how the tournament develops. I want to crack on, though, because I've actually in about an hour's time, I've actually got to go and commentate. Um, so we're going to talk now about um, a subject. A couple of, we remember our uh, episode, Puffery and Lies, mm. um, which is about snooker myths. And we've had a lot of emails from people, um, you know, in follow up to that with their own myths. But I'm actually going to, before we get to that, um, last week at the Championship League, Judd Trump went past Stephen Hendry's centuries tally. Um, he, he got to 778. Hendry, of course, 775. I mean, he's got a chance to improve on that if he ever does mount this comeback, which uh, is seeming increasingly unlikely. <laughs> but um, I actually, I had to interview Judd afterwards, and uh, he actually said in the interview that he was, you know, it was a big deal for him, definitely, to pass Hendry, but he felt that people were kind of finding reasons not to give him the credit. Um, I actually spoke to him afterwards, and he was genuinely bemused by why people wouldn't think what he'd done was a big deal. Now, I think the problem is he's sort of mistaking negative feedback on social media with the real world because people in the snooker world, I don't know anyone who doesn't think what he's done is is incredible. Um, we had an email last week from someone saying that Hendry had played 3,000 more frames to get to the, the same figure. The the sort of stick that he used to beat, he's used to beat Trump is there are far more tournaments now. It's not actually that true, you know. There's not far no. more. There's not far more too much. If you go back to the 90s, in an average season, Hendry would have maybe nine ranking events and probably about as many invitation events. You know, people forget a lot of these smaller tournaments, but they all count, you know, and he made breaks in a lot of them. So that's a bit of a myth, you know, that there's far more playing opportunities now. I think there are more, but there aren't far more. Yeah, I, I mean, again, it just adds to my campaign to just stay away from the cesspit of bitterness. I mean, it's it's giving them a false impression of, of what people think of them. I mean, I I think I you and I speak much more for proper snooker people who are just loving seeing Judd and what he's doing and his amazing achievements over the last few years. That we haven't seen anything like this since Stephen Hendry. I mean, you think of Selby, O'Sullivan, even John Higgins, who's had his times as as the best in the world. I mean, I don't think any of them ever really had a run like this. So it's the best we've seen for sort of 25, 30 years. And, you know, I, I just don't know why someone like that, why would he need to be on social media at all? I mean, what benefit does it really do? I mean, you, you can maybe see why footballers or whatever might be on it because they're probably getting, you know, massive endorsement contracts out of it. But snooker's just not really like that. So I, I just don't know if it's getting to that point now. I always felt that he was just too distracted by Twitter in the World Championship final in 2011. And that's maybe why he didn't win the World Championship all those years ago. But if it's getting to the stage now where he's looking at it and seeing negative comments about him and it's getting to him a bit, then I just don't see why he would why he would want to stay honest. But the idea that anyone should be criticising Trump, you know, and, and what he's achieved over the last couple of years or trying to diminish it in any way is just, just frankly nonsense. In a funny sort of way, though, in a funny sort of way, it might be working to his advantage because he actually said... It's made me more determined to just carry well, on. If, if that if that's the way, then great, you know, then stay but, on it. But interestingly, uh, the great Phil Haig, uh, I never know whether it's Phil Hay or Haig. I think it's Haig. Uh, he's actually, Haig, yeah. yeah, he's obviously a, a journalist for the Metro, and he's actually at the Welsh Open. 
So he's doing a lot of interesting stories. And he did one on Monday with Trump. Um, and this was one in the eye for the Triple Crown. It was because, uh, because Judge, Judge, Trump, Judge Trump was saying that um, he treats every tournament the same. He, and he actually said something quite controversially. He said he doesn't think the World Championship is any more special than anything else. Now, my theory on that is... That's taking a little bit of pressure off. That's exactly what it is. Because we're yeah. coming up to the Crucible. It's two months yeah. away. Okay, fine. Mm. But actually, his approach to every tournament is the same. He doesn't. He clearly doesn't rank them. Even at the Championship League last week, which is not regarded as you know one of the top events, he was absolutely on it from ball one. He just wants to basically win every match he plays. And that is an incredible attitude to have. He doesn't sort of saunter up and think, oh, I'll just do my best this week. He wants to win everything. And that, like you say, is the, the old Davis Hendry attitude. Yeah, I mean, no question about it at all. And look, that's the way to prepare for the world championship, you know, get into that ultra focused mode for every single tournament. And then you don't have to sort of build yourself up for the crucible because you're used to playing like that. I mean, look, we were there, of course, two years ago, seems a hell of a long time ago now. Uh, when he won the world championship and he spoke about how much it meant to him and how much it meant to his family and how he'd wanted to do it all his life. And it was his dream. And of course it is. It is for any snooker player. So it's a bit like when Ronnie, you know, tries to take pressure off himself. And that's fine because it works for him. I think that's what Judd's doing there. So, of course, the World Championship means more to him uh, th th than any of the other events. But that's the way to prepare for it, is to be in that sort of mode throughout the season. Let's go to the emails then about snooker myths. Callum Law. Mm. This, and this one is inevitable. OK, this first sentence is inevitable. He says, I hope you don't mind that I'm about to be a pedant. Because the two of you perpetuated a couple of myths last week. Uh, he said, David, you said Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Alain Robidoux 10-2 at the 1996 World Championship, but it was actually 10-3. Well, I may, mm. have said, I may have said that, but there we are. And, and I think you, you've been maligned here, actually. He says, it says Michael, you, you seem pretty sure the first post-final interviews in the arena at the Crucible were in 1981. But Cliff Thorburn and Alex Siggins were both interviewed in the arena after the final in 1980. Mm. I, think actually, I think actually what you said was, I think I said that the first interviews might have been 85, and you said, oh, I remember it in 81. I don't think you said it was the first. No, um, no, I, I don't think it was. It, I definitely, I mean, think about it in 79. They actually had them at the end of the semi-final, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. With, so, uh, so yeah, to look, um, what's his name, Callum? Yeah. He should know I never get anything wrong. And that's definitely a myth. So. He continues. Yeah. In terms of myths, I think a lot hang over the way certain players play. Fergal O'Brien, brackets, there's your weekly mention. For example, he's, we see we've got the Mercantile and Fergal in already. Doing Early well. doors, yeah. yeah. For example, he's seen as this defensive, gritty, tactical player. When he's actually shown numerous times he can score as heavily as anyone, with the case in point being his match with Barry Hawkins in the 2016 UK Championship. Of course, Fergal made five centuries in that frame. I think it's true that certain players just get tagged with things. For example, Karen Wilson... Um, in recent times, his cue ball isn't as good as other players. Kyron's had 50 centuries this season, so he, it, 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 it may have been true at one point, I think. I actually think it was true, but maybe if it's said now, people haven't quite noticed that he's actually tightened up on that. Well, it's a bit um, like the old Ivan Lendl thing. People used to say Ivan Lendl was, was no good on grass. He got to the final of Wimbledon twice. You know, I'd yeah, love to be that yeah. bad at something, that, you know. And also, certain players get tagged with the idea that they can't close matches out, but the problem is people only remember when they've been 4-1 up and lost 5-4. They don't remember when they've been 4-1 up and won 5-1. So I think I think it's sort of almost a shorthand that certainly pundits and, and indeed snooker fans have 
certain players get tagged with certain things, you know, and, and like you say, Fergal, I mean, Fergal, let's be honest, can be very gritty and tactical. I don't yeah, think but that's, was... that's a good thing, though. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've said this but before. He's not only about... that, though. He's not only that. He's, no, by no means. I mean, there's no way you'd achieve what he achieved. I mean, he won a ranking event, came within a few balls of winning the Masters. He couldn't possibly do that in the modern game without being able to score heavily. And I've said it so many times on here and in other places about Selby, when people say, oh, he's just a grinder. Well, the point I always make is that's definitely not true. If he was just this one-dimensional player who could just, you know, pot long balls and make breaks, people would say, oh, you know, he needs to add a tactical game. Well, he did, and then people tried to slag him off about it. But I think when people say those things, people who are actually knowledgeable about the game, and they describe someone as gritty and tactical, it's actually kind of a compliment, really. (laughs) Rob O'Connor. He says, regarding myths, I have a couple of on-table ones that need clearing up, and they've both been and they've both been perpetuated by commentators. The first is the classic: the white came off the cushion faster than it went on. Unless there is significant backspin on the white as it hits the cushion, this is physically impossible. However, commentators routinely use this one for playing ball shots with no screw. Now you might think by now, what do you know, Rob? Well, listen to this: I'm a physics professor. <laughs> I'm a physics professor and went as far as to put this on an exam last year to test the student's understanding of the law of conservation of energy. Though I had to phrase it in the context of of pool, as I couldn't guarantee that a bunch of 18-year-olds would know what snooker is. While a bigger bounce than expected is certainly possible, the white ball's speed increasing at any point after it leaves the queue in the absence of spin is not. The other one that irks me is... Isn't that always how it goes? When you're playing well, you seem to get the run of the ball. This is is an example of a cognitive bias known as gambler's fallacy. Every shot is independent of the last in terms of luck, and the balls have no memory. If you flip a coin and it comes out heads 10 times in a row, the odds of it being ahead on the 11th flip are still 50-50. Well, I I accept all of that, uh, uh, Rob, but, of course, people's brains don't work that way. And I think the last point you make is an interesting one. When you're down there, if, if something starts to go wrong in a match and then something else goes wrong, so a certain mindset of player will think it's not going to be my day. You can apply it to normal life. If you get up and get out of bed and the first thing you do is stand on an upturned plug, okay? And then a minute later, you, a minute later you stub your toe and then a minute later you scald yourself with the kettle. Three things have happened in a row. You think, this is going to be one of those days. You just think that because your mind goes that way. No, now, I just think I'll just go back to bed. Well, there is, that, continuing, yeah. there, is, there is that. Now, I suppose mentally stronger players in a match don't think, okay, well, it's one of those days. But actually, even though everything you say I'm sure is true, a, a player, a, you know, when you're down there playing, when things start to go wrong, you think, okay, it's going to be one of those games. I've got no luck and so on and so on. Now, that is in itself a test, actually, within a, a frame of snooker. As for your first point, I'm not going to argue with a physics professor um, there are sometimes I've spoke to a guy who who erects snooker tables, and he says you can sometimes get little sweet spots on the cushion where the, the the rubber is kind of not consistent, so balls can come off very quickly. But like I say, I think you have better qualifications than me about this. Um, oh, actually, I haven't finished. He actually his email continues. He said, in summary, snooker doesn't get to dodge the laws of physics or metaphysics. Well, fair enough. <laughs> Well, something that, we should all remember. Yeah, yeah. We should try and get that into your commentary later. But we, we all know for a fact you will definitely say that later if someone's struggling and gets a bad run of the ball. You'll definitely use that line again. But, yeah, uh, yeah. again, look, I'm not going to argue with him. I, I'm just going to say if he has those qualifications, maybe we could have used him at the World Championship in 2015 when I was that, that, that woman I was talking about a couple of weeks ago who asked Stuart Bingham if he applied the laws of geometry to his shot selections 
This about half an hour after he'd won the world title. Paul Prescott writes, in the, in the recent podcast discussing myths, you mentioned one about Stephen Hendry being the first player to break the Reds by playing into the pink at speed from the blue. You suggested quite rightly he couldn't possibly be the first player to play that shot. So now this is a myth within a myth here, okay? So this yeah. Is, this is, well, this is what Paul says, okay? He says, but I've never heard anybody claim that he was the first to play it. I have heard commentators claim he's the first to play it in a particular way that other players hadn't done before. So he's now saying I've started a myth within a myth already. It's, 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 it's kind of Russian dolls, this is. Yeah, he says, he yeah. says traditionally players would strike the white as a plain ball shot, whereas Hendy would play it as a screw shot. The Hendy way ensured that after contacting the pink, the cue ball would zip off the pink to the side cushion and then back into open table. There was no chance of the white sticking to the pink and a greater chance of it being in open space. The Hendry way seems to be the standard way now. Well, yes, that, I think that's that's actually a good clarification. Um, it's not just playing the shot, it's how you play it. Um, and you see now, I mean, we talk about Trump. I mean, it seems like he's within about two shots of the frame. He's desperate to get the Reds open, um, which is very much a new way of playing. I mean, you go back to, we talk about the sort of Mountjoy era. You know, it was much more about the frame's going to develop more slowly. They could make the breaks, but it tended to be in those days it would be a slower process to actually get to that point. Whereas now in the sort of age of Trump, and I'm sure he will inspire younger players to do this. It's about bash them open, make a century. It seems. Well, you think back to uh, probably the most famous moment actually of Doug Mountjoy's career. It wasn't the titles that he won. It was that break was at 145 mm. that he made in the semi-final. That, that's probably, you know, the clip of him that we've seen most often over the years. By the end of it, he looks exhausted because it feels like it's taken him about a month to make that break. Mm. It's just a different way of playing. I mean, going into the pack, it was sort of like seen as, you know, it's a bit like uh, they used to say, to, you know, when the civil servants were trying to get the prime minister not to do something. And yes, prime minister, they'd say, this is very brave of you, what you're trying to do here. <laughs> so it was a bit like that, really. It was like any time a player thought about going into the Reds, it was like, you know, Humphrey Appleby's voice was going off in their head. This is very brave of you. Are you sure you want to go into the Reds? And they just and, and they didn't go in, you know, with, with great force. They'd maybe pick off two or three reds at a time, which in a way is a more skillful thing to do than just bash them open and hope for the best. Well, we've got another touchstone of this podcast there, a, a reference to a 35-year-old sitcom. So uh, <laughs> anyway, Jay Brannan writes, after listening to your latest edition on Stuka Myths, I wondered what's the real story behind James Watanar's 147 of the 1992 British oh, yeah. Open. I've always been led to believe he was told before the break that he was told his dad had been shot and was then informed after the match that he passed away. Well, mm. that's it. That That is the yeah. story. Um, obviously, we don't know the exact circumstances of what happened to his father, but before James made the break, he'd been told that his father had been shot and then he, he played the match and came off and news had come through that he passed away. Phil Yates, who was on last week, I mean, Phil, anyone who knows him knows that he's a very diligent man when it comes yeah. to work. You know, if you tell Phil you've got to be there at three, he'll be there at two. You know, he's that sort of guy. But on this particular day, because it was in Derby, the tournament, um, and he lived not that far away in the West Midlands. So he got a lift with another journalist, John D, who, who passed away actually a couple of years ago. Um, and John was the opposite. He was he was always getting there last minute and basically picked Phil up late. He had to go and do something first. So they got there late and they, they Phil's walked in. And of course, 147s were very rare. I mean, this was... I think only the, like the fifth or sixth had ever been. Um, I think it was the fourth on television. Well, there you are. Yeah, so the, 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 the first since uh, 84. So it had been eight years since someone had done yeah. it on TV. And this is a relatively early round. So it's a kind of, mm. I don't know, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Phil's walked in, sauntered in, 
I've seen Frank Baker, the sort of legendary head of security. How are you doing, Frank? He said, uh, what's been happening in the snooker? So, you know, a bit late. What's been happening in the snooker today? And uh, Frank said, oh, James Watson's had a 147. And Phil was sort of frozen. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to, you know, rush in and do my work and so on. Because there's obviously no internet then, no Twitter. And there's no mm. way. It wasn't live on TV. There's no way of knowing. So he, he sort of stops rushing towards the press room. And Frank, and Frank shouts after him. And his father's been shot. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just an unbelievable story. But that was the story. It was that, that, that happened, definitely. And, and talk about, you know, the extremes of emotion. Um, well, while we're on that point, I have to bring up a story that I think came up uh, the very first time I was ever on the podcast, which we recorded in a medical emergency room in Coventry back in 2015. We were talking about what and as maximum. And the fact, and this used to happen so much in those days. In fact, I think it was you that brought it up, but I remembered it happening as well. Nick Owen, who was presenting the snooker on ITV at the time, started the program by saying, well, it's been a truly extraordinary match here today. And there's a really special moment coming up that you don't want to miss. Now, you always knew at that time that that meant it was going to be a 147. And didn't you actually uh, almost go up to Nick Owen in the supermarket? I saw him in Sainsbury's. Other supermarkets supermarkets are available. And he was was in the self-bagging, struggling a little bit with the self-checkout, you know, all that business. And um, yeah, but I thought, I thought about it. I thought this is what is 25 years ago. I should probably let it go now. Um, and I did. I didn't mm. I didn't tackle him. I'm sure Nick Owen's a nice bloke. Jay, actually, and this is completely unrelated to the subject, but he asked, asked another question about yourself. He said, oh, yeah. he, he said, I've recently yeah. watched, I've recently watched a few editions with my mom of going for gold. Oh no. Does, well, <laughs> does Michael know if the edition he appeared on is available <laughs> on YouTube? If so, when was it? Well, I think you were on a couple, weren't you? I was on four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as I know, they're not on YouTube. I did actually have them all um, recorded, but then accidentally taped over them, which actually, as as we're telling stories, blaming snooker presenters of the 90s for things. Well, let's. Uh, it was all David Vine's fault that I taped over them because they were doing a preview program uh, just before the World Championship final in 1995. And he said, you won't want to miss this. We've got such a special guest coming up today. And I wasn't going to be able to watch it at the time, so I set it to record. It turned out it was only Ray Reardon. You know, who was <laughs> only on... Ray Reardon. Yeah. No, but I mean, it, you know, it wasn't as if, you know, it was someone who we hadn't seen on TV for years and years. I mean, he was still, it wasn't that long since he'd retired. And I had accidentally taped over um, most of the episodes. So I, I only still have actually one of them on, on tape. I did look in a few years ago to, to get in hold of the other ones, but well, uh, perhaps they're better in... consigned to history. You appeared in two finals. Um, yeah. Remind, just briefly remind us of the two people who beat you. Uh, yeah, so I was in the Wednesday final. I was beaten by Frank Schroeder, who ran a printing works in Munich. I was in a craftwork tribute band in his spare time. And in the, um, in the Thursday final, I was beaten by Alexander Latchko, a travel agent from Vienna. Yes. So, yes, quite, quite an experience. And who is that woman with the long name? Elsa Maria Lauro de Silva Perdigao, yeah, from uh, from Lisbon. <laughs> this was the nineties, folks. Okay, let's yeah. move on. Let's get back to the subject. Matt Tarrant. Yeah. He asked two very simple questions. That he, he says he's heard these facts somewhere, but are they true? Was David Attenborough responsible for putting snooker on the BBC? Well, the answer to that is yes. Yeah. David Attenborough was the controller of BBC Two in the nineteen sixties. The new colour service had been introduced, and he was looking for ways to essentially advertise it, get people, I guess, to buy colour TVs. And it just occurred to him that snooker was an obvious choice because of the colours. Simple as that. From that, we got pot black. From pot black, we got all the interest in snooker that led to the development of the circuit. So David Attenborough, you know, obviously is a national treasure anyway for, for everything he's done. But snooker fans have a particular reason to thank him. 
Matt, saw the question, did people stand on milk crates at the 1972 World Championship <laughs> final in Selly Park Legion? Well, again, Phil Yates actually went there as a boy. And yeah, there were upturned milk crates um, that were put in to, to sort of augment the, the existing seating. Um, it was a bit of a kind of rum do. I mean, this was only three years after Pot Black. The professional game, you know, was still kind of finding its feet at that point. And yeah, it was uh, it was very, very different to what, what you'd obviously be used to now at a tournament. Mm. I love the fact, by the way, when you were telling that Watanas story about Phil, you said this was a very different time. There was no Twitter to find these things out, as if that would make any difference to Phil. <laughs> if something was on to him, he can barely send a text message. It's true. Yeah. OK, Ross Hona writes, and uh, he, he's not put this headline on it, but if, if there was going to be a headline, it would be hoist by your own petard. OK, so <laughs> so Ross Hona, Ross Hona writes, OK, uh, I recently watched part of a match from the 2013 Welsh Open between Mark Selby and Steve Davis. A certain David Hendon said that Selby had won the two biggest titles of the season, the UK Championship and the Masters, which had both taken place after the Shanghai Masters and International Championship, an event which had the same winner's prize as that season's UK Championship. And again, this is a subject that other people are talking about, so I'm reading the email out, OK? He said... My understanding is that you argue that the concept of the Triple Crown is contrived by the fact that the BBC broadcasts those three events, a point which I, I mainly agree with. However, is there reason to suggest there was a period before the financial growth of the Chinese events and before rankings were determined by prize money in which the UK Masters and World Championship were the three biggest events? I imagine this had, had, I imagine that this had to have been the case during the darker days of professional Stuka, when there were hardly any events compared today. I know that you... Won't bring up the issue of the triple crown again. <laughs> oh no, you won't. You say you won't. You say you won't uh, bring it up again. But I personally find it fascinating, and and you can blame me for mentioning it. I also think it ties nicely into last week's podcast on super myths or ledge myths, regardless of what side of the debate you're on. Well, <laughs> damned by your own words. No, listen. I, I think I said this actually when when I was initially banging on about this. I've always. I was always on board with the concept they were the three biggest tournaments. That's, that's not an issue. What has sort of irked me, and it's only been literally the last couple of years, is this whole Triple Crown series thing. They're trying too hard for me to make it into a thing. These are major events. I've never denied that. My, my issue, essentially, is that the World Championship is not equivalent to anything. So I don't see how you can put the other two events on, on the same level. But yeah, to me, they were the two biggest events then. Um, we're going back to the, uh, it would be the 2012-13 season. Um, yeah. Actually, I don't think Selby. Did, I don't think Selby won the UK in 2012, did he? <laughs> that's a, that's maybe a side issue. Um, no, he anyway. did, didn't he? Didn't did he beat he? Murphy in the final? Oh no, he did. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert, yeah. Robert, what a year after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the, no, the thing yeah. about it is, we we were all still in the habit then because the UK Championship for me was always the second biggest event because. As regular listeners will know, I love the long matches. I think they're just a class apart. And the UK Championship was always at least best of 17 until it was changed by the time the 2011 event came around. And people might say, well, now it doesn't have that stature anymore. It doesn't stand out from other events. But, I mean, we were so used to it that at that time, 2013, was it the Welsh Open that, that, that he's referring to there? Yeah. Um, we were still very much in that habit. But, you know, you, you can... You can regard an event as being the second or third biggest without buying into the Triple Crown thing. I mean, the, the two things are not sort of mutually you inclusive. Need, you need to let this Triple Crown thing go. You're obsessed with it. Yeah, yeah, good one, yeah. <laughs> but here's, yeah. The thing, here's the thing about the UK Championship, OK? Now, this is going to be another reference to an old sitcom, right? Yeah. There was a, an episode of Only Fools and Horses where uh, Trigger 
he's talking about his broom, Trigger's broom, okay? Oh, yeah. yeah. And he talks about, he said, I've had the same broom for 25 years. He said, all, all that's changed is, is the pole on the head. Right? Mm. And the, the UK, we think about when Doug Mantra won the UK Championship, and we think about the UK Championship now, so we're talking 32 years ago. The tournament, the only thing that's the same is the name of the tournament. Okay, the format mm. has the format has completely changed. The players come in in different, you know, now come in all in the first round. It used to be seeded. The length of the matches has changed. It used to be best of seventeen. The length of the final has changed. So what is the same now as then with the UK Championship? Nothing is the answer other than well, the name. Well, I, I do think as well, and I said this before. You know, the UK has changed. I think also the fact it's always at that time of year, that coming up to Christmas as well. I think maybe maybe that just you know, maintain some sort of a link to, to past times. But I know the point you're making, and, and yeah, it's broadly correct. I think, I, I said this this year, I still think it's a big event, but I do think it's kind of, it's sort of self-fulfilling uh, in a way because it's got the history, but actually looking yeah. at tournament has changed. That's just a fact. And, and, and I, I agree with what you said earlier. Um, well, I think you said it anyway. Um, if, 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 you know, the, if the UK Championship is going to be put on this pedestal, then actually make it into a major event properly, have longer matches, I think it's ridiculous we get to the semi-finals. It's best of eleven, you know. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's that. Um, I think that's it for the myths. But we have some of the emails as well. Now, you're, this this is one literally for you, okay? So okay. this is from. He's addressed it to me, but it's actually for you, right? <laughs> Tony Finnegan. Just like to hit. Just that, that. We haven't started yet. You, no, it? no. But I just. I, I just knew. <laughs> I, I just sensed when you said that it was yeah. going to be an Irish person, which I yeah. assume from the name it is. Well, we'll see. Uh, just like to hear your views on the idea of live snooker commentary on the radio. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it's been tried before or whether it would even work. The success of your podcast proves that snooker fans listen to the radio and for the biggest matches, for example, the world final, I think there could be a receptive audience. I realize a lot of people will prefer to watch it on TV, but some people cannot because they're working, traveling or just out and about at the weekends. The success of other sports on the radio, such as cricket and test match special, prove it might be possible to bring a game like snooker to the airwaves with the right broadcaster. Just think you could combine it with your podcast by reading out this emails, have ex-players as guest commentators, and then like Test Match Special, tuck into the lemon drizzle cakes that listeners send in. Well, by I'm the way, definitely on board with this now, yeah. Well, by the way, you can send them into the podcast if you want. <laughs> anyway, he says, Radio Snooker won't be practical for every match, I know, but for the world final, why not? I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Well, <laughs> Tony, you, you may have missed a brief project that World Snooker launched called Snooker Radio, which you were involved in, of course. Yeah, with Hector, Hector Nunns. And we did it at the English Open. Uh, I just think of the last season. I mean, it doesn't it seem like a different lifetime, but it literally was only last season. And we did uh, we did the four days of the sort of multi-table stage. Um, and we did, we see, what, what we did wasn't entirely commentary. We were largely commentating on what was going on on table two. But we'd be constantly updating what was happening on all the other tables as well. We had players coming in and out for interviews. Even you came in, actually, to the yeah. studio to do an interview. I, um, Phil had been in earlier, so I think I introduced you by saying, and now it's time for another member of the West Midlands Snooker Media Mafia. Mm. So, you know, all the greats came and went. Um, so actually, we, we, the, uh, the, the box we were in was so hot. I remember some of the players looked like they were going to pass out if they were in there for more than 10 minutes. They were just getting so sweaty in there. I think I lost about two stone. It was just as well. It was coming up to Christmas at the time. But, um, yeah, we did it for those four days. And um, I suppose we just never really got a chance to develop it beyond that. Uh, well, this is the thing. This is the thing. Yeah. We don't know whether it would have worked or not because they basically strangled it at birth. They gave it four days. Oh, we're going to I think they said we'll review it. And they never came back. 
Um, when, well, when you say they, it was just to clarify, it was World Snooker. Yes. Who was, approached us and yeah. asked us to do it. And so we did it at the English Open. And I think the idea was we'd do it at all the Home Nations events that season. It didn't quite turn out that way, but uh, maybe it's something we can revisit when, when more normal times come along. Now, on, the, on the subject of you know commentary on the radio, there was, I'm going to try and remember this story as I go along now. There was a guy called Frank Dempsey who uh, worked for one of the sort of regional radio stations in Ireland. Very nice guy, Frank. And he used to come to the Irish Masters every year. And there was one night he did commentary on a match in the arena. And they have they had a fantastic kind of uh, press seating area, Goffs. And I think it was maybe Henry and Davis. It was two big players anyway. And the atmosphere at Goffs was absolutely fantastic. And he was basically doing this commentary sort of, you know, he... He'd go quiet when the shots were being played, but then after every shot, there would be a raucous reaction one way or the other, and he'd take that as his opportunity to say something. Now, I don't think it was even going out live. I think it was recorded, and then they played sort of 10 minutes of it on the radio the very next day. Um, So it it has been attempted. Frank, of course, was the brother of Noel Dempsey, who was a cabinet minister in Ireland for many years, and is famous for about 10 years ago when the country had gone bankrupt. And there were reports that the IMF were coming in and one of the cabinet was sent out to deny these reports. Noel Dempsey stood behind him, just shaking his head in the most unconvincing way uh, imaginable about two days before the IMF did come in. But yeah, his brother Frank was was something of a, of a pioneer in that regard. I feel we've drifted slightly from the point. But, well, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's... what I would say about uh, two things, I'd say, Tony, I think possibly like you say, you could only really do it maybe for a world final. I think that sort of bog standard match, it wouldn't work. On the on the and and I think you know you could sort of make it almost like a live podcast in a way. Um, yeah, I think, I think on, that on, would be the way, and, yeah. and that was kind of what we were going for that week. Yeah. But it was all planned at very short notice. Well, this is we never thing. really got the chance to develop it, and most of the time, actually, it was only one of us in the booth. I think what we've figured through the week was if this is going to work, it has to be two people in there at all times, really. Well, this is the thing, like the the fact is we don't know whether it would have worked properly or not because they only gave it four days. Uh, World Snooker have a lot of kind of sudden ideas like this. I mean, they had their their own podcast. They never really worked out what they wanted that to be. And and as a result, it kind of just dwindled away. Baywatch program doesn't seem to come out anymore. Um, uh, they kind of, I think if they're going to launch something like that, they need to sit down and work out what they want from it. And I don't think they ever did. But they also need to give it proper time. They can't just give it four days. We'll never really know. I mean, obviously, it would like anything, it would have developed into, you know, its own kind of thing. It, they didn't give it time. Whether it'll ever come back, who knows. Um, let's move on. We've got a couple more questions. Adam Fisher, simple question as requested. Can't seem to find an answer. Questions in response to Mark Williams' attempt to respot the green during the shootout. This incident brought lots of laughter from myself and my partner, who only watches the shootout. Long live the shootout. It's a great addition to the calendar. Um, what's the question then? The question, I think I've, I've cut out the question, which actually is, um, can a player respot the balls himself? The well, actually, j- well, just before you do that, because I have to admit, I didn't see this. So perhaps you can explain to us what it was. Cause it well, he was, trying to make, he was trying to make a century. Um, right. and the clock, clock was ticking down. So, he potted, uh, I think he potted a, a green and got it out of the pocket himself and put it on the spot. Um, oh, all right. Well, you can't do that. No, well, players aren't allowed to do that. And actually, this reminds me of an incident in, I think it was in Aberdeen, or was maybe Glasgow, was one of the Scottish events, where Ronnie O'Sullivan, in one of his kind of, um, let's say, funny moods, um, got fed up with Colin Brinder, the referee. Um, lovely guy, Colin, passed yes. away, sadly, a few years ago. But... Um, 
he was refereeing and Ronnie got fed up with the Colin the miss had been called and Colin had to put various balls back and Ronnie it took a while because a lot of reds had moved so Ronnie actually moved two reds himself he picked two mm-hmm. reds up and put them where he thought they were and Colin and this this could be a, this could be the only time this has ever happened Colin fouled him eight points okay now you think the maximum foul is seven but he fouled him four points for each red he moved um, which is correct I think yeah but that's the kind of thing it's one of those things that never happens but it happened um, so the answer to the question, Adam, is they, they can't because it's not their job. It's the referees. Uh, just Tim- uh, you, you, you're mentioning, uh, you know, that story there about Mark Williams. I mean, that's just classic Mark, isn't it? Because there were so many times and he says this quite openly. He'd have more centuries. But for the fact that earlier in his career, he would almost yeah. deliberately break down rather than bother making a century. He just rather get on with the next frame. Now he's got to the point where he's so keen to make them. He's getting the balls out of the pocket himself. Absolutely. Dr. Tim Sandal. Um, so this is on last week's uh, podcast, just picking up on one of the conversation points with Phil Yates in the podcast. The question over whether a player had achieved a frame score of 147 nil without scoring a maximum. So we had a, a query about this. He said Alex Higgins did so against Tony Jones in the 1984 UK Championship in the last 64. Winning the match 9-7, Higgins won the final frame 147 nil. Higgins made a break of 40, Jones fouled 7, and then Higgins cleared up with a break of 100. He, he uh, provides a link to Q-Track. It is on there. All right. And he says, the irony was, as Janice Hale said in her Radio 2 match report, which I recall as a 1980s Higgins fan glued to the radio, Higgins was struggling against Jones and went to the practice table during one of the intervals and knocked in a maximum break, only to achieve the score, if not the break, in the last frame. Steve Davis was playing on the other table at the time and beat Tommy Murphy 9-1. Higgins reached the final that year, losing 16-8 to Davis. Extraordinary memory there. Not only the match, but the, what Janice Hale said on the radio. <laughs> but that's the answer. So uh, I've already said it to Tom Anderson from Eurosport, who also asked this. Uh, so everyone's happy there. Thank you, Tim. And uh, we'll move on now to Brian Dobson. We were talking about, of course, Kazoo have come in to sponsor the yeah. ITV series. And we, uh, he says, in your excellent Puffery and Lies episode, yourself and Michael discussed car sponsorship with the upcoming Kazoo series of ITV tournaments. Whilst you referenced the Skoda Grand Prix, you both forgot to mention the car care plan World, ah, team, yes. World Team Championship played at Bournemouth yeah. International Centre and won by the Ireland A team consisting of Alex Higgins, Dennis Taylor and Eugene Hughes. He says, I'd like to listen to a podcast episode on the one-off, one-off sponsors of events, such as the Guinness World Team Cup, the Pucker Pies UK Championship or the Kit Kat Break for World Champions. I know this is seriously niche, but I also know this is the home of niche. Well, that, you're right there, Brian. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's been some extraordinary sponsors down the years. Um, that are, many of them have sort of come and gone. Uh, Favorite fried chicken, I remember sponsored a tournament Rob, once. Robbie Foldvari uh, <laughs> won that one. It was uh, one of those satellite events. The, the best uh, one ever, though, in Q Sports was the um, the Mysore Lamps World Professional Billiards Championship. <laughs> I mean, just extraordinary. But here, what was Matt Hewitt on to you about this? Because he contacted me, he came up with a really obvious one: the Shanghai Masters. Yeah, no, well, I remember. Uh, I actually remembered that. About yeah. five minutes after we stopped, Rowey, uh, sort of major car company out there, and of course the players sat essentially in in car seats. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, no, good good knowledge. Yeah, I mean we may we may look back on some of the sponsors. Guinness, uh, they you're right, they sponsored the World Team Cup, and I heard an extraordinary story about why they're and we can tell this now because it's like nearly forty years on why their sponsorship came to an end. Um, it involved the, one of the top executives at the time at the WPSA, and I, I must. Um, Reiterate, this was a long time ago, and none of these people are involved in the game now. But he had essentially, uh, he's well, he, he arranged a meeting with sort of Guinness top brass in his hotel room, and he thought it would be hilarious to 
essentially get he's long story short his wife was in a wardrobe naked okay and mm. at, at a given at a given signal she was going to jump out into the room and as a, like a gag okay so this happened and the guy from guinness said okay that's it we're not sponsoring snooker anymore he, he was appalled by it so that's that was the end of yes guinness. But but the thing about that is, had they not pulled out, then car care plan wouldn't have come in for the 86 event. We wouldn't be talking about it now. Get the, the, the subject of Guinness actually sponsoring snooker did come up again when uh, tobacco sponsorship was actually outlawed in Ireland a few years before it was in the UK. So the 2000 Irish Masters was the last one to be sponsored by Benson and Hedges. And people were saying, well, you know, what companies might take it on? Now, the obvious company was Guinness, you know, the most quintessentially Irish brand, although you know, obviously, I know it's 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 much more global thing now, um, and it did seem like a natural fit. The Guinness Irish Masters would would have perhaps worked um, very very well as a thing, but when you hear a story like that, which I have heard that before a number of years ago, maybe that explains why it didn't happen. There's actually one more email. It's from Steve Dunn. My question is this: Which of these do you think is the most likely? Feel free to rank them in order of likelihood. Okay, so there's four things here. One, one. Judd Trump wins seven more world titles. Two. Ronnie O'Sullivan wins two more. Three, Mark Selby wins five more. Or four, Hendry's record will stand until the current players are done. Personally, I think Hendry's record will stand. I can see Judd winning several more, but seven is a big ask. I'd give Ronnie one more at best, and I really don't think Selby will win five more, possibly one or two, though. I'd say the best chance of that record being beaten will come from a youngster, maybe Yambing Tao. Well, you're right. The most likely outcome is that Hendry's record will stand because he doesn't have to do anything for that mm. to happen. He's already won the seven. Um... I think O'Sullivan could definitely win it again. Whether he could win it twice more, I don't know. Um, for Trump to win another seven, obviously to get to eight, you know, that seems like a lot. Uh, he's in this incredible vein of form, but another seven world titles, you know, that's that's a lot. And uh, same for Mark Selby to win another five. So I think you're right. The most likely is that Hendry's record will stand. The favourite, obviously, to pass it is Ronnie O'Sullivan, just because he's closest to it. He's on six. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea of Trump winning seven more. Henry won seven in his whole career. He won the last of them when he was 30, which was basically the age Trump was when he won his first. Yeah. And when we, what is he now? So Trump is now 32. 31. 30, 31. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so he'll be 32 later this year. So yeah. he'll be 31 still. Yes, of course. When this year's World Championship comes around. So basically, he then, from now, would have to do what Henry did, but he'd have to do it all after the age Henry was by the time he'd won all of his. I could see O'Sullivan winning two more. I think it's a close call, actually. I don't yeah. see Mark winning five more. don't think Judd's going to win seven more. But I think it's a close call between Ronnie winning two more. I mean, you look at it. Okay, I think at times this season, he's maybe not shown his best in the big matches against the best players. But listen, we've written off O'Sullivan, not quite written him off, but maybe felt he was in decline a number of times before and he's turned it round. So... Close call for me between those two options, O'Sullivan and Hendry. The other two, I don't, I don't see being uh, in any way likely at all. Well, the thing is, yeah, I agree. Ronnie now is not going to do what Trump's doing, win every tournament every week. He's past that stage. Yeah, but but he could definitely turn up at the Crucible and win that, and sure. then that, and then that's a major achievement. And Judd Trump could win, you know, eight tournaments. But if Ronnie wins the World Championship, you know, that's you. Well, I don't think you'd argue it's a bigger achievement. It's just a different achievement. And obviously, he would then equal Hendry's record. It's all ifs and buts. The problem is, you know, there's only there's only one chance a year to win the World Championship. People, 
I, I, we've talked about this before, but people have had sort of, oh yeah, Karen's going to win it a couple of times. I think Selby will win it a couple more. Neil Robertson's guaranteed to win it again. Trump will win another four. Ronnie, well, hang on. It's only held once a year. Like, yeah. All of those things cannot happen, including Yan Bingtao winning it and all these other people. You know, it's held once a year. So most of those people are going to miss out. Um, and you can get someone like Stuart Bingham just come through the pack, play the snooker of his life like Joe Johnson did and surprise everyone. So obviously going back to the question, the most likely scenario is that Hendry's record will stand, but Ronnie's only one away from equaling it. So that's, um, you know, not beyond the bounds that that will happen. Uh, yeah. I love the idea that people can talk in certainty about who's going to win oh, world championships. Yeah. I remember, I won't say who it was, but a very prominent BBC commentator coming into the crucible press room, probably the year 99 or 2000 maybe but coming into the press room to do a piece down the line as they say with BBC Radio and Ronnie hadn't won the world championship at that stage and he said and of course Ronnie will definitely win the world championship someday there's absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever (laughs) well I mean how can you say that Mm. even better than that though when he won his fifth in 2013 you were still doing your blog then and someone commented and said well this proves that now Ronnie is the greatest he's overtaken Hendry because he's on five Hendry's on seven and I thought, well, how does that prove he's the greatest? Yeah. The next line was, and he will easily win two or three more. You know, what I mean, you, you can't base things on what's going to happen in the future. No, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and that, and that's. I think we go back to what Trump said. It's part of the reason, like we say, that he's trying to take the pressure off himself because he knows he knows that the world championship is bigger than everything else, and he knows that if he goes there, say he goes there and loses first round this year then in some ways that's a disappointing season, despite all the success he's had. It just is because everyone watches the World Championship. It is, and without wishing to revisit an old saw, it is not equal to anything else. It is above everything else. It just is. It just is. Mm. And, it's and coming Trump, ra- is, coming- Trump is probably... Yeah, I know what you're going to say there. It's coming around real yeah. soon, isn't it? And you know, It always catches you a little bit by surprise around this time when you realise... You know, it's only two months away, but even more so than ever now, because obviously it's not that long since the last one. Trump is bound to feel a little bit, I don't know, it's hard done by the word, but something like that over what happened last season. Because you look at the form he was in when the season was suspended, and that was only a month before he was due to go to Sheffield. Now, of course, he might not have won the World Championship, but there's no question he would have gone into it had it taken place at the normal time in much better shape than he ultimately did. He had the crucible curse, though, didn't he, against him? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've had, the, we've had the triple crown. We've had Fergal. We've had the mercantile. We couldn't finish this week without the crucible curse. I think we need to liven up the act a bit. It's becoming a bit predictable. And, and of course, when, when, when we're taken over by a, a mega corporation, which will be happening in a few yeah. weeks, we, we need to up our game a little bit. Um, anyway, that's it for now. Um, so you can contact us, of course, about any issues in the snooker world. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. I had a few other emails which I couldn't find. So I don't know. There was a very good one about, um, I think it was from someone in Canada saying that the world final sh- shouldn't finish on Bank Holiday Monday because it's only a Bank Holiday in Britain. I have to say, there's a lot of logic to that. You know, mm. um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a cosy British thing, isn't it? You know, because it's a working day for, for people around the world. But I'll try and find that because I haven't deleted anything. So it's just sort of, I don't know where it is, but I'll, I'll look back. There are other emails we haven't got to, but they're all stored away. Well, yeah. Just as you mentioned that, right? Let's 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 go. You know, even even for us, this is going to be really niche. So <laughs> there have been times when the world final 
I mean, because even when they started finishing it on Bank Holiday Monday, it wasn't every year by any means. Mm. Like they had it then in 1980, I think was the first time it was Bank Holiday Monday. The next year when Steve won it for the first time, it was actually Easter Monday when it finished. Well, it's then, not, uh, that session, I think, I think that session started at five o'clock as well. Yeah, that used to be. Yeah, that used to be more a thing. I think the uh, the first session that day had started something like eleven o'clock. Anyway, what was the point I was going to make? Oh yeah. So then the next year, for some reason, the World Championship ran all the way through to the sixteenth of May and finished on a Sunday. Then obviously in eighty five, it finished on a Sunday as well. Although technically it was the early hours of Monday morning. So uh, and nineteen ninety as well. That was another one that finished on the Sunday. Now I have to admit, I have absolutely no idea why. Those years were different because certainly by 85 and definitely by 90, we'd gone into that mode of it always finishing uh, on the bank holiday Monday. And if anyone has any idea as to why it was in 95, it finished on the Sunday. But I know where that was because the bank holiday had been moved because uh, it was uh, the 50th anniversary of VE Day. So the first Monday in May wasn't actually a bank holiday that year. And then obviously we know why it finished on the Sunday last year and it didn't quite feel the same. I think the point that's been been made there by the guy who got in touch in the email that you can find yeah. uh, is quite quite a valid one. But I've I've always wondered that, and I've asked people about it. Phil claimed he knew uh, why the '85 <laughs> championship finished on the Sunday, but then you know his. Well, I his, think uh, I, I, I think that's because it's did it not start on Good Friday? No, no, that was ah. what he said. But that right. wasn't no, <laughs> another not, myth. In, another myth. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, in 1990, that is what happened. It did start on Good Friday, but that but that still doesn't explain it because there have been other years like 87 and 92 or a couple of examples that come to mind where the first weekend of the championship uh, was Easter weekend, but they still started it on the Saturday. So it still doesn't entirely explain why it happened in 1990. And it definitely wasn't for that reason in 85, because the first day of the championship just wasn't Good Friday. So, uh, uh, you know, people, again, we've made enough 80s TV show references today. We might as well make another one. People our age will remember what a big deal it was to get a Blue Peter badge. Well, maybe we should start a snooker scene podcast badge and give it to anyone who can actually come up with the actual explanation as to why the 85 and 90 championships uh, ran from a Friday to a Sunday rather than what had been the traditional thing by then. Well, we could maybe hand out the uh, we could maybe hand out the badges at the live show. At anyway, the live uh, show, yeah. yeah. You can email us snooker. C- I think I've said this already. You can email us snooker scene podcast at mail podcast at mail We end as we begun by uh, paying tribute to Doug Mountjoy, who was uh, a great figure in the sport, and uh, his passing reminded me of something John Spencer once said when someone asked him, "What have you ever done for snooker?" and he said, "I played it." And Doug Mountjoy played it to the end. And he will be missed by many people in snooker. So, uh, as I say, we pay tribute to Doug Mountjoy, and we'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.